0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, as your Word declares, may our hearts believe. As your word is preached, may we receive it with fertile soil. May your spirit, may he be here, may he be active, and may he transform us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. As a father, I can remember with joy, or the joy and the hope that I had as I held each one of my four children in my arms right after they were born. With new life comes the promise of the future, comes the promise of hope and dreams, and the possibilities for our newborn children seem nearly endless. That is part of the joy of parenting. You get to watch your children grow and develop. Even though as a parent it can be hard to let go, let go we must, unless we handicap them for the rest of their lives. We get to watch the seeds that we plant as a parent, both good and bad sometimes, come to fruition. And yet sometimes, for all the right reasons, parents do all the wrong things. They have good hopes and dreams for their children, but as their children grow and become their own people, they have different ideas about what their life should look like. This can lead to profound disappointment as a parent and lasting bitterness. From children. Whether it be something as silly as, I played this sport, so my kid's going to play that sport and he's going to like it. Or I played this instrument and so my kid's going to do that. And as they get older, they realize, one, I don't like it that much. And two, I'm not that good at it. A tried example. But these types of hopes and dreams and disappointments are really common for parents and children. Hopes and dreams are one of the reasons why When you lose a child, especially a young child, it can hit like a ton of bricks. The hope that you had for them turns to despair as it is consumed with death. Knowing people who've lost their children, this is often one of the hardest things for them. They had a whole life envisioned, what they would see from their child. I experienced that as an uncle two years ago this week when my nephew of 10 passed away. I've experienced that anguish, as Emily and I have experienced two uh, miscarriages. Sometimes we think, what would this child have been like? How would he or she have fit in with the other siblings? How would God have used their gifts and abilities? I say all this to tell you that hope and life go hand in hand. Where there is life, there is still hope. Despair and death also go hand in hand. To be alive is to have some measure of hope for the future. To fall into despair or even depression is to give up not only on the present, but the future. You can't see any hope for tomorrow. It's to give up on life. Today's passage deals with the themes of new life, new birth, and therefore hope. Hope for the future. Last week we saw that our identity as Christian is Christians is this we are elect exiles. That means as elect we are God's chosen people. And as exiles that our primary allegiance or even nationality as it were belongs to Christ and his kingdom. Last week we spoke at depth or at length about our identity Especially in contrast for how we are often sent out to search for our own identity and to find it ourselves wherever we may find it. But I want you to consider again how much of your identity and how you answer the question, who am I, is completely beyond your control. To steal a modern phrase, it's assigned to you at birth. Your family, you don't get to pick them for better or worse. Your name, yeah you can change it as an adult, but your name, much of your looks is predetermined. Your DNA is predetermined. Your ethnicity, your sex, the time period into which you were born, you get no say over whatsoever. Your generation, some of you sitting here are Gen X, some are millennials, some are the greatest generation. You didn't get a choice in that. The most basic answer to the question, who am I, is your name. You're not to someone. who are you? I'm Levi Secord. What does that mean? Of course, your character, your passions, your career, your work ethic, all of those to some extent are controlled by you. And you get to shape that as you grow. And you will learn more about those things and make conscious and unconscious choices as to who you will be known as. But so much more of it It's just not up to you. You don't get to pick. Rather, you're to receive those things as a good gift from God. Peter today turns from the issue of identity, in part, to speak about the new realities of that identity. Yes, you are the elect exiles of God. But what does that mean for you? Perhaps it's better to say that Peter here is zooming in on important truths for what it means to be a Christian and the foundation for how we are to live and so Peter begins this section with a blessing to God the Father and to our Lord Jesus Christ now if you don't read that carefully you could walk away from this verse saying well only the Father is God and Jesus Christ is something lesser than God still important maybe still been around for a long time but not God but that would be a massive mistake The earliest confession of the church as you find it in the book of Acts, the thing that identified the church as distinct was this confession. Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And throughout that New Testament, that term or title, Lord, is applied to Jesus, while the term God or Theos is applied to the Father. And these things should not be pitted against one another. The term Lord is wrought with citations from the Old Testament. So when a good Jew like Peter or Paul ascribes the name of the Lord to Jesus, they're making significant claims. And often they will take Old Testament passages where the term Lord is used for God and then they will pluck Jesus and put him right under that title. Why? Well, the term Lord was just how they filled The personal name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. So the early confession that Christ is Lord is to say Christ is Yahweh. Christ is Jehovah. Christ is God in the flesh. Of course, this is what Jesus himself does throughout the Gospel of John as he relates himself to the great I Am. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd and the one that almost got him stoned. Before Abraham was, I am. To say Christ is Lord is to say that He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. He is God in the flesh. Praising God for what He has done sets up Peter's next statement. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. i want to read that to you again. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. So what we argued about last week, Peter makes plain here. What is the cause of my new birth? What is the cause of my election? What is the cause of my salvation? It is the great mercy and the power of God. It's not you. It's not some clever sermon delivered by a pastor. It's not a clever argument that was made to you. It is the great mercy and power of of our God, Again, the Gospel of John. Speaking of the new birth, John 1.13 says this, of those who are Christ, who were born not of the blood or of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So we weren't born by the will of man or the will of the flesh or by blood, but we were born by the will of God. What causes this new birth to be born again? Is it my will? Is it my doing? Is it my choice? No. Is it the choice of my parents? No. It is the will of God. Now none of that means you don't have to believe, for clearly you do. But the primary foundation is the will and mercy of God. If this morning you have been born again, if you have been saved, The ground and the foundation of that salvation is the great mercy and power of God Almighty. That is the stress here. God's overwhelming mercy is why you are saved. Think of all the um, time and money we spend in our culture today trying to change people. Think about all the time, money, and resources we spend trying to improve one another or ourselves, whether it be education or something else. The power of God is displayed in a new birth that brings a fundamental change to people, free of cost. You can't buy it. You can't purchase it. And so Peter begins this section by focusing on the character and the power of God in salvation. That your salvation reveals far more about who God is and what He is doing than who you were before Christ. So Peter continues. He says this, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what I want us to focus primarily on this morning. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your hope, in no uncertain terms, is inseparably tied to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Of course, if we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we have to talk about his death. But there is a special emphasis that we sometimes ignore in Christian circles upon the resurrection. If Christ died and he did not rise again, it was worthless. That's the message of the New Testament. No resurrection, then his death, doesn't accomplish anything. And that is what Peter wants us to see here. Why? Because the resurrection is really the first fruits of the new creation. It is the foundation of our present and future hope. That Christ rose from the dead is why the Gospel writers go through such great lengths to demonstrate to you and to the entire church for the last 2,000 years that when Christ rose from the dead, it was not just spiritual. They walked up to him and they touched his body. He sat down with Peter after Peter went a whole night without catching any fish. And I'm very sympathetic to that. right? He didn't catch anything. And there's Jesus sitting on the shore grilling fish, eating it with him. Christ came back to life Physically, there is no question in 2,000 years of church history on this. That if Christ did not come back to life bodily, then we have no hope whatsoever. You have been born again, not to death, not to despair, but to hope because Christ lives. He has a body. You have a living hope. You have the hope of a life that is so powerful and indestructible that it overcame death. That is the hope of the Christian. That is why martyrs for centuries have been willing to face death. Say, you want to kill me? Go ahead. Christ already overcame that. Peter will spend much of this letter dealing with and addressing specifically how Christians can deal with suffering in this life. And he starts here. Christ rose from the dead. If we want to talk about suffering in this life, if we want to talk about persecution, your hope is built on this. Christ lives. Christ died. The tomb is empty. This is why the early church went from worshiping on Saturdays to worshiping on Sundays because Christ rose again on Sunday. In a few weeks we'll be celebrating Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, but really every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. To put it plainly, if Christ died, then our hope is also dead. Or if he's still dead, then our hope is dead. If Christ only lives as a spirit, then we have no hope. As I said in the opening, life and hope go hand in hand. Where there is life, there is still hope. And this hope is not some vague, wishful thinking that somehow, someday, things will get better. But this hope is based on this: The tomb was empty. The tomb is still empty. Christ 's heart stopped beating. Christ 's heart continues to beat today. That is your hope. So let us consider this a little more. The idea of being born again. Why is Peter bringing that up here? Well, he's expounding upon Christ 's teaching in John chapter three. Now we all know John 3:16 backwards and forwards, but before that. Jesus is having a discussion with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is one of the uh, famous teachers of Israel. And Jesus says to him that you, you cannot come into the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Now there's an intentional play on words there that born again also means to be born from above. Jesus is saying quite plainly that your physical birth as a Jew, as a son of Abraham, was not enough to come into the kingdom. It's not enough to come into the covenant. Sorry to my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, physical birth does not get you into Christ's kingdom. It does not merit baptism. Something else has to happen. And on being told he has to be born again, Nicodemus says, do I need to go back in my mother's womb? Is that what you're talking about? I go back and forth on this. Nicodemus was an educated man. He knew his Bible backward and forward. Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. So I go back and forth on this. Is he just being sarcastic and snarky to Jesus, or is he genuinely confused? I'm not sure. Depends on the day when I read it which way I lean. But Christ tells him that he needs to be born again from above, and that this happens by the Spirit. It says, "...the wind blows wherever the wind desires." As I mentioned, I was there when each one of my four children were born. I saw it happen. I can attest to it. But how do we know if someone is born again? I think that's really what Nicodemus is, is getting at here. Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just as you and I cannot see the wind, but we can see the trees move, the flags rippling, so we can see the effects of the Spirit. You cannot see someone actually be spiritually born again, but you can see the leaves rustling. You can see the flag rippling. You can see the effects of the wind, of the Spirit. And one of those marks is personal holiness. And Peter is going to elaborate on that here in a few weeks and so jesus says in john that those who are born again of the spirit look at him in faith that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life that is our living hope and the stress here is that it is living it is ongoing in nature it is a hope for the future, yes. But when Paul, or Peter says here that this is a living hope, he means that it impacts you right now. It's not just future hope that you have because Christ lives. It is present hope. Right now, for today and for tomorrow, you have hope because Christ is risen. We can think about the resurrection of Christ as a past, present, and future thing. It is past in the fact that it historically happened. There was a day when Christ's body was in the tomb. And then the next day, it wasn't. There was a day when the disciples went to that tomb and were shocked because it was empty. This is not just a fairy tale that we tell one another. It historically happened. People witnessed it in the past. The resurrection is a present hope for Christ is still alive today. And he is ruling and he currently has power over sin and death. And since he is risen, you are called to live today with hope. Not just for tomorrow, but for today. And it is future because Christ's resurrection points to what his kingdom is like. Or as the Apostle John puts it, When he appears, we shall be made like him. Like his resurrected body. Our bodies will no longer be held by sin or death. The resurrection of Christ is the new creation breaking into this world. And it continues to spread. When you're born into a family, you're given that family's name. And you also receive the legal right to inherit the property of that family. We call it an inheritance. And with our new birth into Christ, we also receive an inheritance. Peter describes it here. To an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Those born again to a living hope also have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What does that mean? In its broadest sense here, Peter is speaking of a reverse of the impact of sin and death placed upon creation at the fall. Jesus warns us in the Gospels, do not store up treasures on earth where the moth will eat it and rust will decay it. This universe is ruled by something we call the law of entropy. And as things break, things wither away, they become nothing, everything breaks eventually. What good is our living hope if entropy eats away at our inheritance? Paul says that creation itself is groaning under the weight of this sin and death, this futility, and this is why Christ had to die. To reverse it. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's incorruptible. That means that your inheritance will never decay. What is being kept for you will not rot away. It will never break down. It is permanent. If you think back to our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, We read that God gives us all of these temporal good gifts and they're meant to be received as gifts but we want to build all of our lives upon these things and the more we try to hold them tightly they slip through our fingers and they're never satisfying. Your inheritance in heaven is nothing like that. You'll be able to grasp it. It won't eventually be boring. It won't not satisfy. It will be fully satisfying. It is also undefiled which means your inheritance is morally righteous. There is no stain of sin upon it whatsoever. It is altogether holy and right. You will feel no guilt or shame for having it whatsoever. It is unfading. This last Greek word is only used by Peter in the New Testament. And he uses it a couple times in this letter. And really, if you look to the end of chapter 1, he's alluding to what he's going to get to, is this idea that the grass withers and fades. Your inheritance is not like the grass, that in the sun will be scorched to death or will be killed by the winter snow. It will never fade. It will never wear out. And so our inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, just like our Savior, who is remaking the world in His own image. Diseases will no longer steal lives in our inheritance. Sin will no longer ensnare and trap individuals. For we will eternally be with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Brothers and sisters, that is your inheritance. That is what Christ came to seal for you. And you get a glimpse of it, the first fruits of the new creation, in Christ, in his resurrection. Everything will be set right. And again, this means that we are called to live with confidence and boldness today. Your inheritance is not kept in some bank account somewhere. It's not in the stock market. It's not in political victories. Your inheritance is kept in heaven by the power of God. Therefore, as Peter will get at, you can endure anything and everything this life throws at you because Christ has risen. This is really one of those passages that should humble us because the stress is primarily on on God in what he does in our lives. It is God who caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's in our past. It is God who keeps our inheritance in heaven for us. That is your future hope. And now Peter focuses on here and now. He will say that God keeps us or guards us now. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So God causes you to be born again. God secures for you a future inheritance, and God is currently guarding you and keeping you. What keeps you in the power of our in salvation? The very power of God. What keeps you and guards you in this wicked age? Is it your cunning? Is it your wisdom? Is it the intensity of your faith? Is it the intensity and regularity of your quiet time? No. It's the power of God. The word used here for guard carries with it the imagery of a military fortress. Really the imagery Peter wants you to have in your minds here is that God is this fortress and you're inside of it as the enemy armies are surrounding it. But this fortress is impenetrable. You can't get into it. God is keeping you and guarding you in such a way. So this means that as the enemy surrounds us, though the night gets so dark that you feel like you don't have a hope, though life crumbles beneath your feet, that you are being kept by God. To put it another way, the same power that created everything out of absolutely nothing is the same power that keeps you the same power that parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could walk across it on dry ground and the Egyptians were swallowed up in the waves is the same power that keeps you. The same power that called Lazarus forth out of the tomb is the same power that keeps you. The same power that, was, or that shattered the chains of death in Christ's resurrection is the same power that keeps you. You were born again by that power. You will be resurrected by that power. You will be remade by that power. And by that power, you are being kept in this wicked generation. So let me state this plainly to you, brothers and sisters. Christianity is not, now, nor will it ever be, a religion of defeat. It's a religion of victory. Now, God brings that victory often through counterintuitive ways but it is a message of God's victory through Jesus Christianity is not about despair it is not about giving up but it is a firm and secure hope Christianity is not dead and dying it is about the surpassing power of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christianity is not pessimistic about tomorrow optimistic. Are we? I think that's part of what Peter's asking as he gets throughout this letter. Are we a people noted for our living hope? I said this to you guys a few weeks ago. I'll say it again. I know many of the struggles that you face in this room. I know many of the armies surrounding the fortress. And it is easy to look at those things and to lose hope. But we are called to look to the living Savior. Your hope is alive. It is a person. And he happens to be the God-man who rules over every molecule in the universe. There is always hope. And so my advice to you is this. Why, O soul, O my soul, are you downcast? Look to God. He is my salvation. And to that I add, Look to Christ and to the men in this room, I add, man up. Stop acting like we lost. Live with a joyful courage and surety that your king, he is alive, he reigns, and he's given you marching orders. And he's not going to let you fail. That God keeps us. That doesn't remove us from responsibility. He doesn't believe for you. You must believe but he gives you a foundation for hope for today and tomorrow. Through faith, it says here. That God keeps us through faith. There are two basic applications for this passage. The first one is the one I just shared with you. Live with a bold confidence. Have a living hope. Don't be a chicken little. The sky is not always falling. Sometimes it is falling. Sometimes there are really evil, wicked things going on that we need to speak plainly and forthrightly about. And if you've been here any amount of time, you know I'm going to do that. But we do not give up. We do not lose hope. While we can and should work for righteousness in every area of life, our hope is not tied to immediate success tomorrow. While we may hope a certain thing does happen, or that it doesn't happen, while we may look for a certain bill to be passed or to not be passed, that is not our ultimate hope. In fact, we are called to spread the kingdom of Christ because we have a deeper hope. Christ is risen. Christ reigns. Christ is returning. Live like it. Second, in light of the mercy and power of God, in causing us to be born again, In keeping our inheritance, in giving us our inheritance, in keeping and protecting us in this wicked age, in light of all of that surpassing mercy and power of God in our salvation, we are called to praise him. There is no accident here whatsoever that Peter starts this passage by praising God. Why? Because he's about to tell you everything God is doing for you. When we see what God has done for us in Christ, our hearts should overflow with thanksgiving and praise to God for he has given us great mercy and grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning that we have a living hope. That as we look to the cross and we look to the empty tomb, we see a seal of that hope that Christ reigns, that he lives, and that because he lives, we have a hope for today and tomorrow. Lord, may we be such a people who walk around not in arrogance, but with a calm, living hope that Jesus lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen.